This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome again to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad. On the show, we delve into people's life journeys from the point of view of twists and turns, shifts and pivots. We've all had them. Some are more visible than others and make a stop in our tracks and make a course correction. Others only come into focus with hindsight when we look in the rearview mirror and realize that a particular moment was pivotal in our lives. This is the essence of what I did next. Today I'm joined by Ferris Hackett. Ferris is the regional director for Meta in the Middle East and Africa and has a long track record with a company formerly known as Facebook. Before his current role, he was the Meta Global Director for Media Partnerships, a pivotal role that saw him navigate an incredibly fast-moving media landscape. He joined Meta after stints at media giant NBC, as well as going it alone for a while as an entrepreneur. We also talked about how being exposed to so many different cultures during his childhood solidified his sense of self. As the son of a Syrian diplomat, Ferris lived in South America and Europe before landing in the US for his university years. The questions of identity will seem a familiar refrain to our listeners, as this has become a consistent thread linking many of our guests this season. I loved this conversation with Ferris as we really did a 360 on so many subjects. Beyond his life journey, we also talked about the future of technology, the metaverse, and of course, where Meta sees itself in that equation. As always, we kick off with the people Ferris would invite to his ideal dinner party. I'm, I'm a huge fan of biographies, by the way. This is like a lot of what I consume, whether it's reading or, or, or movies or documentaries. And I have a huge fascination with people who have accomplished, you know, um, uh, success in their professional uh, career or in their purpose. And that purpose going beyond them. Um, I think that's where absolute impact is. So the likes of like Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, um, I think even Obama. I mean, Obama, maybe um, the jury's still out, but but it's it, to me, you know, I've read bo- his books. I think he, he genuinely came into this with um, thoughtfulness and, and, a, and a purpose bigger than, than what he is. And, and regardless of what you think of his, you know, maybe political stance, I think he, he has made history for um, an entire race, an entire group of people that, that and that can't be, be taken away from him. Um, I think that group of people would elevate the conversation into, if there is a meaning of life, I think the closest it comes to it is having a purpose greater than yours and, and, and committing your life into something that has um, an impact that goes way beyond even your lifetime. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think a lot of the guests who've come on this show 
have gone beyond the kind of fun, you know, party type people. And a lot of people have come back with very similar answers to you, similar descriptions of the types of people. And they've landed on the prophets as being uh, similar in terms of people with a with a purpose above themselves or beyond themselves. And, and it's interesting that it's always those sorts of um, character traits that we all gravitate to because fundamentally we want to have discussions about the meaning of life, right? 100%. I mean, I, I think for me, going with a slightly kind of more human um, characteristic is, is uh, I don't have... I feel the level of enlightenment yet to to maybe be able to absorb a, a kind of a celestial uh, character. So um, a human with with clear flaws that I can more relate to is 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 probably where I'm at uh, in terms of of being able to to see that bigger purpose and more attainable, right? Something to more of a role model, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, at yeah. least for me, you know, I think maybe with time, with time, you know, you can get to that enlightenment um, where I'm at right now. I mean, you know, take Nelson Mandela as, as an example. Um, he's someone who who's not perfect in many ways. I think on his personal life, he's done many things that, you know, I'm sure he he would think about again. Um, I've done a lot of work in Africa, and, and I know some of the tensions uh, that lie there. And for someone on a personal level, on a political level, philosophical level, to 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 be so selfless with the opportunity to be very selfish um, showed great foresight. And we see the consequences of other regions like Zimbabwe and other places where they've chosen the other path and how destructive that is. And unfortunately, even where South Africa is now uh, with the absence of such yeah. um, leadership is at today. Um, tell me if there'd be anyone within your own sphere in terms of the tech world. I mean, someone like, do you would you put on a par someone like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs for the the revolution they created in what was at the time a new industry? Could you look at them in the same mold? Um, potentially. I mean, I think Steve Jobs, in my mind, is is in a bit of a league of his own uh, because he genuinely invented industries that change the way we operate. Uh, so, so to me, is is quite enlightening. Um, in many ways, you know, our own CEO, Mark, I mean, he's, he's you know, maybe controversial in some aspects, but undeniably uh, had a major impact on society. And, and it's still unfolding, and he's you know, relatively young. Um, uh, he, he's, he's introduced a, a new way of engagement and interaction that um, although competitors have come along and, and, and you know the industry is shifting and who knows what the future holds, but again, you can't deny um, the foresight. And it wasn't, I would say it wasn't a one trick pony. You know, this is, he saw the foresight to buy Instagram and WhatsApp and, 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 and saw uh, as incredible foresight for social engagement and social interaction. Even his views around the metaverse yeah. is is also very um, very forward thinking. Um, it's it's something that you know he never claimed would happen now. Just like when he made the acquisition of Instagram or WhatsApp, and people questioned the valuation, mm. it's it's something that you know is a bet on really on human behavior. Yeah, uh, beyond anything, more than technology, uh, more than. Uh, 
apps or, 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 or functions. It's, it's an, a bet on how we are to evolve in our communication and, and our engagement as, as humans and betting on facilitating that in the most frictionless way. I hate this this phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. Your origin story, hmm. you know. I, I don't know if this is like a movie term phrase, but where did you? You're Syrian. Uh, where did you? Did you grow up in Syria, uh, or were you raised abroad? Tell us a little bit about your early years. So I am I am Syrian uh, from Halab. Uh, my both my parents are are Halabis, uh, from Aleppo. Uh, I was born in Brazil. I was born in Sao Paulo. My dad was ambassador. And so we moved around a lot growing up. So I was born in Brazil and, and you know, we lived in London for a bit. Uh, Syria, I lived in Syria, uh, kind of my early education years. I left Syria when I was around uh, 12 or so. Um, I went to school, Arabic upbringing. Um, and then uh, when I moved uh, to Spain, I uh, actually, that's where, I would say a lot of like my English and, and, you know, I didn't speak much English until that point. Um, and I graduated high school from, uh, from Spain. Were you in Madrid? Your dad was, I was the, in Madrid. Uh, yeah. I, my, my dad was the ambassador to Spain. Um, then I went on to, to university to the United States and that's kind of where I left the nest because the one the one consistent thing uh, about moving around was my nucleus family like my my nuclear family was yeah. you know we we always my parents made sure to maintain kind of the arabic can upbringing household culture yeah. uh, aspect the cultural of homogeny yes. of of our region yeah yeah and you have siblings Ferris? i do i have a i have an older brother and a younger sister and so you, you, I know you have a knack for languages. You, you speak Portuguese and Spanish. Yes. Are you fluent in both those languages? I am. Yes. I mean, I, uh, I, I can't take too much credit, right? I mean, if you live in Spain for six years and you don't learn Spanish, sure. it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's on you. It's on you. Uh, Absolutely. And then I was born in Brazil, and and I do enjoy language. I think languages and food, and and you know, this is a, uh, is the is the most primal way to connect with people. And, 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 you know, I've, I've had a very kind of international background. And when people ask me like, what's that? And I say, you know, you can, you can, you can be friendly, you can learn certain gestures, but until you're willing to speak to them colloquially in their language and eat their food, because food has such mm -hmm. deep rooted, um, cultural meaning, right? Like it, it ties to, to history and attachment. And yes. And it triggers certain emotions that nothing else does. I think uh, it creates a certain bond, and it's uh, my wife uh, has a very sensitive stomach, and I and I have a pretty, you know, I can eat anything that doesn't talk back to me, and it's it's <laughs> yeah. quite it's quite a skill. I, I enjoy it. I, I not only I, but it's it's been such a useful thing to to bond with people. And I, you know, I I had I've had global roles, international roles. I've worked in different markets, and just my ability and interest in in connecting with people over even if it's just a few words and their food. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying because what I'm hearing is uh, someone who's very international but still very, very um, sure of their their roots, very, very much a Syrian abroad. 
uh, we've had a lot of guests recently who have really been questioning a lot where they're from. Um, uh, w- you know, what does it mean to be from somewhere when you've lived so many in so many different places around the world? And like you, I'm Egyptian, but I spent all my life in different countries. So, but again, the Egyptian is still very much there. So it's interesting that you have that that foundation is still very strong in you. It's a defense mechanism. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely, I think I think if you if you don't recognize and own who you are then you're exposed to people telling you who you are. And that's and that's a very dangerous thing. That's right. I also think that that comes from someone who's very confident in themselves and very sure of themselves. And that's a very good thing because you're not going to be told you are this and you are that. You already know, you know, which is which is good. Is your wife also Syrian, Fetis? My wife is Jordanian. Okay. Uh, my wife is Jordanian. We, we, we met in Dubai. Um, my wife is Christian. Uh, I'm Muslim, so it's it's also kind of adds a twist to to the to the to yep. the whole thing. And and to me, you know, both of us, I think, um, yeah, we represent the diversity of the region in in many ways. And, Absolutely. And it's uh, it's I think it makes our household a lot richer. So you began doing um, your bio biotech biotech, and then you moved into um, an MBA. What what was going through your mind in terms of making that jump from this to this? Were you are you someone who had a clear vision for where you wanted to be, or are you someone who followed interests and fo- you know more of an instinct driven character? I I. I'm not one of those people. I know some people like my uncle was one of those people at like 12, 13. He wanted to know to be a film director in Hollywood when my grandparents didn't even have a TV at at, at home, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not that. I, yeah. I wish, I wish, you know, that gives you a clear purpose. It, that wasn't me. Um, I I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I thought this was going to be, you know, my, my brother was a dentist uh, and, and, you know, my parents were like, you're doing good in school. You can, you can pursue the, the medicine track. When I went into it and I started looking a bit more into it, I did it, my heart wasn't really in it. Um, yeah. I think, um, and it's a very, very sad, tough career to go into, a uh, long haul career if you're, not, if you're not really passionate about, about the medicine. I think I was more into it maybe for the lifestyle, the perception, um, but not what I wanted. Um, technology has fascinated me uh quite early on i mean i could i could see implications ramifications of what it could mean across multiple aspects of of society both technology and media mm-hmm. uh in on its way of allowing us to tell our narrative and it's also what lives on beyond us and that was influenced also by my environment like when i moved from from boston to california uh, Los Angeles, in particular, I mean that was the hub of, and still is the hub of the of the media uh, world. Um, seeing the power of of that, and I think I still believe one of the biggest exports that the United States has done to the world is their pop culture. Yeah, and that happens through media, movies, songs, etc. And so I started working um, in in that space with with uh, with the studios. And and doing working with consulting firms that primarily worked with the entertainment industry. Um, I also have family. Like I said, my uncle is 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 was quite a successful uh, movie director and producer, and and so I had insights into into that world. 
When we come back, Ferris talks about his passion for the startup world and the pivots that eventually led him to his role at Meta. That's right after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to What I Did Next. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to my conversation with Ferris Akked. After a few years in management consulting, he launched a startup and got his MBA. Ferris was happy to make his life in the US, but suddenly his life pivoted towards the Middle East and he hasn't looked back since. An opportunity came to, to join another consulting firm that was really uh, very... I was joining in the US, but that was very big in the region, which was uh, at the time uh, Booz and Company. Buzan Hamilton then became Booz and Company. And honestly, at that point, I had been in the US for 12, 13 years. I had no interest in, or no, having given it a thought to come back to the region. And they had approached me and said, you know, how would you like to, you know, you, I, we know you're interviewing for the US and, you know, you, but how would you like to explore coming to the region? And it was a scary thought. I, I, I was quite set in my life in, um, in the US. Uh, and, they were quite persuasive and and you know allowed me to come and visit and and I was quite shocked because uh, at the time booze uh, was bigger than the other strategy firms combined in the region it was a real powerhouse which is quite yeah, unique they were the first weren't they in the region i think yeah they were the first and they were also had this formula which i think was very successful uh, which is to bring arabs that Expats, mm -hmm. so Arabs, people who have ties to the region, not, not just Arabs. I mean, there were people, I remember the dinner they invited me to was like this table of people who were either from the region or people who grew up in the region because, you know, their parents grew up and worked for Aramco in Saudi yeah. and yeah. they happened to spend time, time in the region. So, so it had some link. And that formula is very, very, very um, successful here in the region because- It works well. Yeah, region it has unique well. cultural nuances. So- if you are, if you have the caliber in terms of education, work experience to operate in such a firm, but still have the nuances of the region, that that mix, I think, made Booz really, really quite uh, a powerhouse, and I'm grateful for the experience. Yeah, my family had the same experience because um, my um, my parents emigrated from Egypt to the U.S. and my father did his MBA there, and then worked for Mobile Oil in New York, and this is the early '70s. And the mobile oil followed the same um, concept as booze. So they were trying to open up the Saudi market and they were looking for Arab Americans. And so my dad answered that call and we moved to Saudi. And it was exactly what you say, having that, that person who could bridge the divide culturally between um, the Arab world and America and explain each to each other was vital and 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 made you know the company very successful in the region and these are these are underrated um elements that um that you you can't put on a cv you know you they're they're intangible right they're um, but they're very important well well i'll tell you where it's tangible i mean I, most of my really good friends and 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 at some point even business partners because uh, we ended up forming a company together at one point um 
our our booze uh, expose and and today i would say it's a it's a very fluid network but it's it's probably and i'm a member of many many um organizations alumni groups etc but it's still probably one of the most powerful ones mm. there isn't an organization in the middle east or government entity that does not have a booze guy yeah um, and that still holds true till today yeah, yeah. the legacy is is really remarkable and then the, the the one thing though about consulting was the lifestyle you know I, up to that point i was single and you know it's it's quite taxing ex- extensive travel long hours and at one point i wanted to have a little stability like i you know apartment barely furnished no car just kind of very very light uh and i wanted to lay some roots and so i decided to shift and i got an opportunity uh to go back into media uh which was with mbc group mbc was um obviously largest media group in the region they recognized that they had a very huge presence um on on tv on in traditional media but the chairman recognized that there is a pivot towards digital um and that was going to come quickly and so he wanted to build a little bit more the digital arm um and so i came to basically be head of digital business development uh which later on included you know shahed investments in angami uh and 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 a bunch of other stuff it sounded like a really interesting opportunity because it's it it's you know i didn't know that everything i had been doing would lead to this intersection which is media and telecom at till that point they kind of operated in parallel lanes mm-hmm. but um with the rise of ot uh, over the top applications and video on demand this intersection they started converging uh before joining though uh, a bunch of us uh, at booze we launched uh, another startup which was uh, uh, so it was four guys uh, launching a cosmetics online company uh, which we uh, grew and then um, later on went to sell um was that a sideline uh, for you for you consorting. were you in a main main job at the time or was this did you kind of leave that and do this full time or so i did we took we took turns in a way uh i i i had a gap between the 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 jobs and and started uh, me and another guy who were kind of like quite hands on in, in in kicking it off and then one other partner of mine um took on kind of being ceo for a while but we were all quite involved over a period of like 4 to 5 years um and and we raised funding actually mbc ended up being an investor uh, saudi telecom was an investor uh um al-bilad bank in saudi and then a consortium in saudi ended up buying it out you know when as you're talking as you're talking i'm noticing that it's the startups that make you smile and it's the startups that you start with your friends or when your friends are involved that you have a twinkle in your eye about the 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 self you know the self created businesses you know well i have a look as as a soft uh, spot in my heart for for startup because you're creating something yeah. right and and you are kind of um master of the destiny of of this company of 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 the people that work at this company you create a brand and it goes back to the theme that you create something that is bigger than you. Yeah. Um it still warms my heart till today when I meet uh, you know usually ladies and and then they say oh I used to subscribe to to Glambox or I used to buy <laughs> stuff from you guys. And it's 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 a nice feeling because yeah. 
you know, it's something that, you know, started around the dining room table as, as you know, a couple of friends starting and then, you know, it goes on to become something bigger. And even my involvement today, like I sit on the, on the board of Kafu in the UAE, which is a, a fueling app and a couple of other startup enhance and Kidzonet and a few other, and, and just watching the story evolve, you know, I'm, I'm obviously less involved, sure. uh, but watching the, the story and the trials and tribulations of, of the entrepreneurs and the teams, you know, they pour their hearts and souls into it. And that mm -hmm. level of commitment is, is invigorating. It, 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 you know, it, it moves you emotionally. And I always tell them whether it, it hope, you know, succeeds or fails, it will be a pivotal point in your lives because it's something that is is an extension of you. Few roles or jobs end up being an extension of you. Um, but when you start a company, it's always an extension of you. Tell me, Ferris, about your move after this to Meta. You had, um, before your current position as regional director for MENA, you were director of media partnerships. Tell me a little bit about the rationale for you to do that, to join it first of all, and the evolution of your, your between the two roles that you that you had. Um, as part of my role with NBC, I ha I interacted with all the tech companies, and more and more so over the years, as the convergence happens between tech and media. And one of those was Facebook at the time. Um, and and Facebook was looking to set up what they call a media partnership team. The media partnership team is effectively the interface that happened between between Facebook and the media, media publishers, broadcasters, celebrities, uh, newscasters, etc. This so how can we help them leverage our platform for what they need to do, which was becoming more and more relevant and essential for everything they do. And um, at the time, the guy who was heading uh, the EMEA, and there, it was quite a, a new team um, within Meta and a brand new team within uh, for the region. And so it sounded like a really exciting opportunity to help build it. So it had a lot of startup aspects to it, hire the team, uh, set up what this could mean for the region, and make sure that we are prioritized. You know, when you, when you, when you join a company, like like Meta, it's like joining a country. I mean, it's 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 yeah. a massive operation. And you yeah. have to lobby internally and externally, and and what I and and so that's why it, it sounded like a, an exciting opportunity to help build something that is at the right intersection between media and tech, but probably more meaning more leaning towards tech, where where I thought um, the future is heading. So you were coming in in effect to create this new division. This wasn't already there. Uh, it was already obviously existence in other in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So I joined to build it for for the region. I did that for uh, a, a, a couple of years, um, and then what had happened was uh, we had the Cambridge Analytica and some of that uh, those challenging times for the company, where the company took greater interest in 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 things like news on Facebook. And, and and how people engage with that stuff. And I was, uh, and one of my um, uh, people I kind of indirectly worked with was, uh, and, and a mentor was the lady that he heads uh, news on Facebook internationally. And um, 
and and she was a journalist herself, and she had covered the Gulf War and a couple of other things. So she was quite familiar with the region, and and uh, she had she approached me and said, uh, you know, how would you like to focus, uh, come kind of join my team and lead the uh, the news org uh, for all the international markets, so uh, Latin America, APAC. Um, MIA, India, etc. So everything outside the US and, and Western Europe. Um, and that sounded like a really exciting uh, opportunity. I mean, I grew up with uh, kind of an acute political sense and I'm a bit of a news junkie myself. And and it was a really sensitive area for for the company. It also gave me, I had done, I've worked, I had worked in Europe, uh, US, obviously, Latin America, uh, Middle East and Africa didn't have as much in India, but not as much experience in APAC. And this was a great opportunity to also look into a new a new territory. And is this what are we what a what years are we talking, Ferris? Is this like 2015, 2016? This would be so 20, I would say 2016 to 2018, 19. I'm just trying to put it in context with what was happening in the world at that time. <laughs> a lot a lot a lot was happening and 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 you know the 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 beauty of you know we are we are part of the social fabric of every society at a very micro level. So Yeah, exactly. whether it's you know an earthquake uh, in Haiti or you know uprising in Myanmar or uh, you know challenging elections in Ethiopia we're in the midst of it. Um, and so under that organization, we established a fact-checking program, which was partnership with news organizations that we we outsource fact-checking to, all the way to doing programs for journalist safety, um, working with publishers on, on getting their content on the platform in a way that ensures um, appropriate distribution, to getting involved in potential, you know, contentious content and takedown. So it's a really, um, it's at the cutting edge of of of, uh, of human communication and some of the contentious um, issues uh, that were taking place around the world and, and in turn being reflected in, on on our platform. Uh, great learning learning experience, um, and 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 you know, got to also understand the inner workings of of the company, uh, so the formation of the oversight board, which is kind of the, the board that ultimate decisions go to that sits above even, even our management. Uh, so it's, it's, it was really uh, quite an eye-opening experience. Throughout that, though, I found myself, and, and you know, speaking of roles that become an extension of you, I became, in a lot of ways, obviously an ambassador for Meta in the region, but very much an ambassador for the region within Meta. Because uh, lobbying for and making the case for some of the nuances of our region. And you know, we're we're a relatively large region, but I think the amount of news and and noise that comes out of the region, I think even goes beyond the size of the region. Can you give me an example or two, Ferris, about the kinds of issues you were lobbying for within the company at the time? I mean, we all remember, I remember very clearly the Cambridge Analytica issue, but that was very much a US-focused problem. Um, and I know that the company was very preoccupied with that at the time. 
But what were, in your mind, when you were in this particular role um, of heading the media partnerships, what were the main issues that you were confronted with that you had to uh, fight for within the company? So like one, look, one example that is not necessarily like um, contentious, but it's just kind of um, understanding of the region was... Uh, when we do our analysis to where we make investments, let's say in video or or where we think are important market for video consumption, we do it country by country, which makes sense. I mean, sure. it's a, you know, for my consulting days, this is a very yeah. analytical way to say, all right, how much content is consumed in this country? How much ad revenue, et cetera? But that region doesn't operate like this. We have a history of free-to-air satellite where people put content up in the air and it, and it covers a broad range of, of countries. Um, we have 1,400 free-to-air chan- uh, channels in the Arab world, the highest per capita in the world, by the way. Most of them are religiously motivated or politically motivated. And so most of the attention ends up gravitating to a handful of you that actually do content for content. And I would put you know, NBC in that category. So NBC ends up getting 50% of that content. What, means, what that means is that that content that's going on NBC is not just for Saudi, although it's a Saudi company in theory, right? People are watching these series in Morocco. They're watching them in, in, in as, as down as, as Ethiopia. They're watching some of the dramas that are shown in Arab. So I had to lobby to say, guys, you can't look at uh, MENA as country by country because we will never rise up to compete with some of the larger uh, countries or larger population countries. This is not a border or political discussion. This is a cultural discussion. There's an underlying common denominator across MENA that goes beyond our borders, which is, which is you know, th- this cultural nuance of we all watch Arab Idol or Got Talent, or we all are watching the Turkish dub dramas. Yeah. And so we have to look at the region in aggregate because that's how consumption happens. And as a platform that transcends borders, we need to think in that way. And that that took a lot of convincing a lot of data a lot of you know interviews and what did that mean in practice if you've if you've absorbed that research wh- how did that show on the platform what it showed is that arabic is the second language after english on facebook it also showed that we consume twice the global average of video than the rest of the world really wow that's yeah. huge absolutely and it showed that there is a gap in arabic content vis-a-vis the amount of consumption. So 5% of, of the users are, are Arabic, but you know the con- at the time it was like 1.5% of the content was Arabic. So the massive opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And it also showed that there's an opportunity to make MENA or one of the top four video play markets for for our platform. Right, so, right. Uh, in, over the years, that has has shown itself, you know, not just for us, but for YouTube and, and other yeah. platforms that converse that this is an, a massive opportunity. So, you know, going beyond the desktop research and kind of understanding on the ground, you know, goes yeah. back to the food and the speaking the local language and understanding the nuances of how people actually live, not how they're supposed to live as per the, the borders. Um, I think opened up a ton of possibilities. And then, you know, there are many, there's no lack of issue. There, there, there were challenges with Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. There were there were there was uh, challenges with, with some of the conflicts we have in the region around Yemen, Syria. I mean, there wasn't a dull day. But that's just an example of, of, 
of having to explain some of the nuances um, that are mm. important for us as a company to be able to operate in the region yeah. effectively, grassroots effectively. When we come back, we talk about social and tech trends in the Middle East and Ferris schools me on the metaverse. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to my conversation with Ferris Akkad. I'd like to look a little bit about the um, emerging social trends that you're seeing uh, globally, but specifically in the region. Um, do they differ? Are the global trends different to the local trends? What do you see happening uh, currently and in, let's say, the next five years or so? So, look, I think the 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 the, the global trends um, tend to... Uh, align to some degree, I think the uptake from the region is where we see slight differences. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, right now we don't see a lot of technology innovation coming out of the region. Um, in terms of like, we're not seeing massive, you know, AI development here or, or VR, AR, etc., hardware. Um, but what we do see is that once some of these trends um, emerge. We see massive uptake from the region. We're very much early adopters, aren't we, yes. in the region of technology, right? Early and heavy adopters. You know, the region is 70% under 30, in most part 200% mobile yeah. penetration. And we just have this hunger to, to try things. So it's very common that within our platforms or even, even other platforms that somebody will reach out and say, look, I, I'm a startup in San Francisco and we just launched this thing. And all of a sudden we see like a massive spike out of... The region we're not even marketing in the region, um, and you see that uh, a lot for a couple of youth, mobile adaptivity. We're massive as a consumers of content, so anything content, like I said, you know, yeah. twice the global average um, of of content consumption. We see a huge concentration. We have about five point five million creators that like self identify creators here, more than any other part in EMEA, almost as many as the US. We see huge upload. Uh, of of content, um, we see innovation, also a lot of creativity around um, content and creators and what people do. Um, so in that sense, it's about how can we manage that and keep up with with those with those kind of innovations. Um, some of it is on us to bespoke certain things, like provide the right to left text for people to be able to communicate in Arabic, provide the right kind of stickers and, and, and tools. Um, and, and other is, is also to come up, you know, kind of listen to the regions as part of our role and feedback that to our engineers to, to, for them to 
create some of the functionality that the region is demanding, which which um, which I think can unlock massive potential here. Mm-hmm. And is part of the emerging trends um, looking at the metaverse? Is that is that do you think that that's going to impact our region as fast as it is in other areas of the world? And firstly, actually, Ferris, maybe you could explain <laughs> the metaverse to us and to me, yeah. because I've had a few people on the show explain it, but it's always it's an important uh, subject and we need to just start to get our head around the whole concept. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a sort of um, an elementary explanation. Sure. So look, I think part of the reason it's vague and and, and maybe a bit confusing is that it, it it's still shaping up, right? I mean, there are some principles, which is that rather than interacting with the internet from the outside as a two-dimensional internet, the idea is to blend that internet into our reality. Mm-hmm. So today, you say, I'm going to get on the internet. You know, I'm going to pick up my phone and get on the internet. But what if that internet was interweaved into our world? If this conversation was happening with you be, you know, me being an avatar next to you or you being an avatar next, or both of us being in a virtual space where we're able to interact, that makes a richer experience. I can put you on a beach or in a mountain or in, in, in you know, having my dinner uh, with characters. I can have Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa and Obama around the table and have that conversation uh, around my dining room table. So the mix of virtual and, and, and actual reality, yeah. I think the ramifications of those principles are massive. Explain what they are. I can, you know, you, you have a knee injury. I can look at your knee and, and, and be able to see the actual injury and potentially from a remote location be able to conduct a surgery. Case in point about innovation in the region and the metaverse. A doctor in Lebanon who, anesthesiologist that noticed that young kids, um, you know, under six years old, like undergoing anesthesia were going, you know, they, they have a high level of anxiety. The sensation of anesthesia gives them, you know, anxiety because they, they, they feel they're losing control of their body. Um, she, she started using the, the Quest devices to, to put them in a, in a kind of cartoon-like world so that it eases them in and out of anesthesia. Like everything on our platform, it's for us to build the pillars and then we rely on the ecosystem for implications and, 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 and use cases. Now, in order for that to happen, we've always said it's going to be a five to 10 year uh, horizon. And, and I think there was so much excitement early on that people were getting frustrated that there's not, you know, where is it? When, when is the launch? And, you know, I think saying to people it's 10 years out is, 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 is a bit frustrating, but I think once these innovations start to happen, just like with the mobile phone or the internet in the 90s, as we were talking about that, um, once it starts happening, it happens fairly quickly. But until then, we recognize that these devices need to be smaller, they need to be um, uh, cheaper uh, to ensure that everybody has accessibility. We recognize that it's not just about living in a virtual world, but it needs to bring the real world and the virtual world together to make a richer experience. And that will take time. It it will happen, but it will take time. And 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 you know the the externality that need to take place around it as well. And how do you I mean I'm sure a company uh such as Facebook uh, such as Meta uh look forward and try and look at the potential 
pitfalls or problems that could be associated with um with the with with the metaverse what do you see as the um the warning signs that might appear in the future what are those things that you're concerned about that you're thinking how to solve now so look some of the things we can predict like i think um copyright issues you know when you're looking at virtual assets kind of ip ip rights and and trademarks um the safety and security and you know personal space like one thing that very quickly became apparent is that we need to provide people the ability to create a personal bubble right um in order to 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 give them a space but i think learning from our challenges in the past is that a it's not realistic that we'll be able to predict all the challenges and so we've allocated a fund uh, 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 $50 million a year to, 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 to basically for academic institutions, uh, think tanks, civil rights societies to, to think through some of these challenges and, and what might come up and, 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 and feed them into us. We also learned that because regulators don't move as quickly, it's like we need to make sure we're walking regulators uh, with us through this journey. Um, because we don't want to be the arbiters of this truth or, or or the regulators of this society. I mean, there are very smart people that think about kind of society and, and, and the way we move forward. And the definition of society is an agreed set of rules that we all agree to operate under, right? And that's why societies differ from place to place. And so as we go into this new frontier, I think it's important for us to jointly agree on what that would look like. And that's why maybe a five to 10 year horizon is not a bad thing. Uh, to give us time to to gradually uh, move into that space. Um, but I think it, it will be a journey for all. I want to ask you a little bit about how uh, you have managed to mitigate um, what has been overall in the last few years a, a, a relatively negative reputation for Meta in terms of um, uh, the, the, the concept of fake news and the trustworthiness of the information people are receiving. How have you approached that? So look, I think um, it, it, it's a challenge for sure. And I think uh, with our, our scale and our, our, our influence, um, it's a responsibility we have to bear to some degree. But I think also it's, it's fair to, to put things in perspective. Like, None of these things are new. Um, you know, fake news have always existed. You know, yellow press has always existed. Um, uh, individuals trying to manipulate or take advantage of media for their for their personal benefit or political benefit has always existed. We have provided a mass communication tool that has made the process probably more efficient. Um, 98, 99% of what takes place on the platform is constructive and positive. I think that loud, small percentage of things ends up getting the headlines. But most of what I hear, even my visit to Zatari camp, people are saying, you know, I, I stay in touch with my loved ones on your platform. I communicate daily on, you know, using WhatsApp or I keep up with Instagram. I mean, that's the majority of what takes place, friends and family and yeah, communities. Sure. Exactly. But on the on the on the marginal outliers, I think we are at the cutting edge of human communication. And so in many ways, we take the brunt for 
being the largest social media, probably the largest communication platform in the history of humanity, we take the brunt of, you know, what how humanity evolves and how people are taking advantage of these things. And and the challenging thing here is that it moves at such a fat pace that in many cases we are way ahead of regulators. And and that's not to, you know, we don't want to be ahead of regulators, but if you see some of the testimonials mm. and you know regulators move at a at a slower pace and and we and, and so we find ourselves in a position where we have to come up with ways uh, preemptively to keep up with some of the evolution that's happening on the other side of people trying to take advantage of this so give me an example of what those preemptive moves might be so for instance you know going live on facebook you know that's a that's a for the most part it's it gives people the ability to to be able to broadcast themselves and and over the phone you know just be able to go live um we started noticing that in in some cases people were again a very small minority but doing self harm committing suicide um you know wow. okay. using that live and so you start thinking well you know maybe live is more of a privilege so if you're a bad actor, if you're someone who has like certain strikes on your account, maybe you lose that privilege, right? You start developing algorithms. We developed a, the algorithm and, and, you know, this goes into AI and, and some of the machine learning stuff that you're able to predict some behavior. And there was the ability to predict and prevent 1,500 suicides one year. You're able to see a pattern, communicate with law enforcement, and then they intervene. And, and you know, you create that balance between freedom of speech and safety on the platform. Because if you also overskew to say, all right, nobody can go live, then you also probably you know harm the majority, the ninety nine percent of the people that are using it in very useful, constructive ways. So you you have to constantly walk that fine line. I want to end, Ferris, on on a subject that I hadn't planned on discussing with you at all, but based on how we talked about different er- areas, you're being a news junkie and being aware of what's happening everywhere. Um, the, the idea that a lot of large corporations now and universities in the US, in the UK, are putting out briefs about how they want to remove certain wording from their communication, that they will supplement or re- remove certain words that used to describe things and replace them with more um sort of diversity friendly words how do you guys approach the subject of the sensitivity of users and uh making sure that you're inclusive in your approach to to your consumers it's a huge huge issue in the US it's a huge it's becoming a larger issue in the UK it's not yet an issue in our region but like a lot of things we tend to import the good and the bad from other places. Hmm. I wanted your take on that. Is there a corporate um, um, philosophy on this? Is there, are we going to receive, you know, are we going to see Facebook or Meta very soon launching their acceptable phrases and words? What's happening on that front vis-a-vis you guys? Well, we do. I mean, we we are, we are very big on diversity and inclusion. Um, I think as a company that operates in, you know, across the world, 3.5 billion users, et cetera, um, we have to be extremely inclusive. Um, we have our protected category um, groups 
and our community standards, which ensure that everybody's treated with respect and dignity and and that any harassment or attack that 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 breaches those those protected groups is is not tolerated on our platform and we take it down. Um, it's a complex issue, but I think you know our community standards operate at a very basic level of everybody being treated with respect and dignity and and in a civil manner. And so um, you know as these debates, Player on, and you know, again, as the society evolves, our community standards evolved also. So, you know, culture evolves, and and so we are. If, if anything, we're not shaping it. We're at the recipient end, with the principles that we've always operated on, which is which is um, diversity, inclusion, and respect for all. Ferris, that's it. Thank you. My pleasure. I mean, I spend a long time. Uh, talking about people's, you know, influences as they as they grow up, and I'm I'm very interested in in seeing how what you were raised doing you kind of bring into what you're doing now, and it's it's really interesting. Absolutely, it's it's. I mean, I have a fascination in this too. This is you know, my biographical interest as well. I think it's how we're raised makes us tick, and how we tick is how we operate. So absolutely. Well, Ferris, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. And if you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. On our bonus episode for members, which comes out next week, Ferris and I dig further into some of the applications of the metaverse, cybersecurity, and some of the learnings from his startup days. You can get this episode by signing up on our website as well as on Apple Podcasts. What I Did Next is brought to you from ANT Media. This episode was hosted by me, Malak Fuad, and is produced by me and Shirag Desai. You can follow us for more on our website, Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Just search for what I did next. We'll be back again with a new guest in two weeks' time. See you then.